Hello again, all my gorgeous listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast. And we're here to chat all about the wonders of sex, sexuality, and the body. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and as always, I'm part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, trans rights, and of course, my favorite topic of sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise It really does help to keep the mics on. Or if you feel like it, please pop over to Apple and rate and review. You can also drop me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at Glow West Podcast. So I'm here today to talk to a guest who wears many hats. Um, very, I suppose that's probably an understatement. She is incredible for the work that she does. And today I'm talking to Andre Shakti, who is a queer, cis, white sex educator, columnist and professional slut living in Baltimore, Maryland. She wrestles mediocre men into submission and is the reigning polyamory pundit at her non-monogamy advice column, I am polyamorous and so can you. She also helms Sanctuary, which is a virtual strip club, bringing digital dirty delights to you on private screens on a weekly basis. Andre strips, she whips and she likes dogs more than you. And you can find her at iampoly.net or thesanctuaryclub.com or on OnlyFans at OnlyFans.com forward slash Andre Shakti. Andre, thank you, Emil, for coming along today. How are you keeping? I'm so good. And you know what? It has been several years since I've been to Ireland and your accent is just such a breath of fresh air. I'm, I'm so happy not only to be here for the content, but also just for your musical voice. Thank oh, you for having fab. me. I'd say like Irish accent themed audio erotica and stuff must be huge in the States. I imagine so. I mean, I'm really into a I got into erotica, written erotica before I got into like actual visual pornography, but I don't know that I've really like dabbled in like audio erotica. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'll, I'll add that to my next like masturbation session or something. There, I'll let no, you know how it please goes. do. <laughs> yeah, I hope there, there must be an Irish thing, especially around like St. Patrick's Day. There must be something kind of coming up. So I'll have a look for that um, on my travels. So um, you are a busy bee and your body is a busy bee, I suppose. You're using your body for work quite a lot. Um, let's start with the wrestling because as growing up as a fan of wrestling, I was always like, you know, a fan of Hulk Hogan and stuff like that. But I suppose it's no surprised that people make it a sexual thing also although I don't really want to see Hulk Hogan sexual wrestling but um, maybe some people do <laughs> maybe that's their to thing their yeah oh, absolutely their yeah <laughs> so tell us about that so you wrestle mediocre men which is very specific <laughs> well it used to say mediocre white men and then um and then I realized, especially when I moved back to, uh, I spent some time in, in Northern California when I moved back to Baltimore, Maryland, which is where I am now. Um, you know, it, it actually is a predominantly black city. And so I realized that my demographics didn't quite fit my bio anymore. So I changed it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I've been into wrestling ever since I can remember. I, um, something that gets me very hot, so to speak, is uh, intellectually as well as physically is to hear people's origin stories when they have a particular fetish. Um, I love hearing like the moment that it clicked for them, you know, like the moment that they were six years old and they watched their mom's high heels clacking across the linoleum floor while they hid under the kitchen table. And then they always had a high heel fetish from that moment on. Like those things are so fascinating to me. And so I remember being like nine or 10 years old. And my very, I've always been like a 
I was a very big kid. Like I grew into it, but I was always a lot bigger than the kids around me. And my best friend was very petite and I would just throw her around. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't even like overtly or explicitly sexual in any way, but it's like, I just really loved roughhousing. I loved like tossing people around. And I, I had a big dog growing up and I loved like wrestling with my dog. And I loved just being like, very like very physical. Um, and you know, now as adults, uh, we're still best friends, this girl and I, and we look back and I'm like, wasn't it so fun when I like threw you over the couch? And she's like, no, it wasn't fun. You fucking <laughs> threw me around all over the place. I couldn't defend myself. And I'm like, oh shit. Like I didn't know consent when I was seven, but what it did turn into was like a lifelong kind of passion, um, for, for wrestling, um, that then turned into, uh, in my late teens, early twenties, um, something that was very like intrinsically, related to my desire and to my sexuality and um like I'm just a brawler like that's like the kind of person that I am that so kind of rough aspect um, of things yes and, but yeah. full skin on skin though as well a lot of people reduce sex to just genitals but you're using your whole body in that exactly I mean I was drawn to um I have a background in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I was drawn to it originally because, um, you know, while I enjoy roughhousing, like I said, I'm not a big striker. Um, for me, like punching and kicking has always been a bit too savagely barbaric um, for me. And so I much prefer, quote, a ground game, like getting somebody down the ground and, and dealing with them there. And I also really like um, expanding stereotypical definitions of bondage, right? Like we think of bondage, we think of leather, we think of rope, we think of latex clad dominatrixes cracking whips. And, you know, there's, there's psychological bondage, right? There's like psychological and emotional bondage. There's, there's exercising restraint and using power dynamics without ever touching an accessory, so to speak, just using like the physicality of your body, you know, to restrain somebody or keep them where you want them. And Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu really like teaches you those skills, not only in a way to help you defend yourself, which I think is important knowledge for every person who is assigned female uh, at birth and or walks the world as a feminine person to learn, um, but also uh, to do it in a really safe way, you know, there are a lot of things that come into wrestling, um, things like breath play, for example, or other kinds of like dangerous or risky activities and having some skill-based knowledge around that stuff definitely lessens the chance that you and, or your partner are going to get hurt, um, attempting like new sexy activities. So yeah, kind of um, important. So yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. And then does it, you know, you have like wrestling porn out there, like actual mm -hmm. wrestling porn, not just Hulk Hogan kind of wwe stuff but is that your area as well is that like kind of bringing out the baby oil is it like getting all slippery <laughs> that seems well, like it'd be I, actually i won't do baby oil wrestling or like soap wrestling because it's actually really really dangerous um you can't like get a hold on somebody so yeah. it's literally just two people throwing themselves at each other and then just like ricocheting off each other in either direction usually like on a very hard surface so i actually i'm too like risk assessment hard reduction oriented to allow myself to do stuff like that but um I did start out um in the porn industry when I started doing porn when I was about 22 or so um I started out answering Craigslist ads uh here in the United States that is, um, isn't that like the 101 of like do not yes. do that <laughs> Okay. It also dates me. It's definitely it like an era, right? Yeah. Like Craigslist is an era. And so 
I was like in college and I'm like answering sexy gigs on Craigslist and they were looking for women. Uh, this company rented out a boxing gym in downtown Baltimore and they were looking for women to literally come do like partially nude female fight club. And you would show up and they'd film it. It was a website. Then you'd show up and they gave you no instruction. They gave you no like you know, skill-based information on how to defend yourself. They didn't tell folks, you know, like we're only going to go 50%, you know, hard, 50% light. Like they didn't give you anything. They literally just like threw two strangers in a boxing ring together. And they told you that the winner gets to take home an extra $400. And so I started doing this like very dangerous, like kind of underground cat fighting. It's called cat fighting in the fetish world. Um, you know, style fighting. And after getting hurt a whole bunch, I was like, wait a minute, I really need to learn what the hell I'm doing. And that's when I got into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So I was like, I like this and I don't want to die. Um, and then I started shooting. Yes, exactly. And, you know, people are into wrestling for a wide variety of reasons. I feel like you can take any fetish and use it almost as an umbrella term in and of itself. And then like explore all the different reasons why people are actually into that fetish. And so with wrestling, you know, some people are, are into the breath play element of it, right? They just want, they want you to, to restrain, to restrict, to control their breath through a series of moves. Some people are into the athleticism. They want to feel hot, sweaty bodies on them. They want to see muscles rippling. They want to like kiss and worship like people's muscles. Um, some folks have, uh, they're really into like a particular part of the body, like feet or legs. So they want you to put them in a specific hold where they are quote forced. And when I say forced, I mean, obviously under the umbrella of yeah, like enthusiastically of, consent. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, where they're forced to like smell sweaty feet or they're forced to, you know, have their head trapped between like a pair of powerful legs. And so there are really like so many different, um, elements to explore within just that single niche. But that kind of sounds just like what you do as kids you know if you're wrestling and yeah like I remember like you know like you have to smell people's smelly feet and you're wrestling and it was like the worst thing in the world but obviously as adults there's a sexual element to that so that's kind of fun but it also is like that power struggle can be like the really hot thing of knowing you can be overpowered um you know mm. a lot of people have fantasies about bondage and you know um non-consensual sex and obviously fantasy land is obviously very different to reality land but yeah I think that's a kind of a fun part of that to know that you can be um physically held down with things absolutely absolutely and that actually what you just said about like kids reminds me you know one of my clients my long-term clients his like aha moment was when he was like six or seven and the him and this babysitter were watching tv and she was playing keep away with the remote control and she trapped him in like a scissor hold with her legs like as she you know held the remote control over his head like taunting him and he was like that was the moment that was the moment (laughs) that i was like I'm into scissor holes. This is my thing. Let me expand upon this as an adult. And so, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Like, you know, when we, when we can look back, if we can look back, not everybody can, but if we can look back and kind of find when those moments happened for us, it's really fascinating. Well, and it's also like full use of, of the body as well, because, you know, like you said, if you're just focusing on the gentles, you're missing out, but like skin is, mm-hmm. you know, all, it's the biggest organ. And we like, like, that's why we like hugs, you know, because it's like, you know touching so many parts and I suppose wrestling is a slightly different form of hug and you know touch on the body 
slightly different. I do say sometimes when I'm wrestling, like I do say, I'll accuse some of the guys like playfully. I'll be like, I'd be like, you didn't want to wrestle. You just wanted to aggressively get cuddled. Like it's really, <laughs> it's just really aggressive, like spooning when it gets down to it, you know, yeah. it's just very aggressive cuddling, you know, it feels in the same way we talk about like anxiety and how people use like compression and like weighted therapy, like weighted blankets or compression certs to help um, a lot of times calm their nerves and like reduce anxiety. Uh, some people can make that translate into like the weight of somebody's body on top of them. And it's actually, you know, can not only be arousing, but it can also be like cathartic or therapeutic. So there are lots of different, Absolutely. like I said, lots of different elements that you can like pull apart and out of, you know, this, this one niche fetish. Absolutely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think people might look at it and go, oh, who would be into that? But when you scratch the surface and break it down like that, it actually ticks many boxes for people. So yeah, maybe mm-hmm. more people after listening to this might look up um, your wrestling stuff and see they might, yes. might become new fans, maybe. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> we'll get there. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I've done a lot of work for, um, two big websites, uh, academywrestling.com and ultimate surrender, which is an, um, offshoot website of kink.com. And, um, they have some pretty incredible, um, both mixed gender as well as, uh, gay male and, you know, quote, lesbian, um, wrestling porn with some added strap on domination (laughs) for effect. So folks can check that out too. Just to throw it in for for good measure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, just in case, you know, in case you find yourself like in bed, like with your vibrator after this, this podcast, you know, just just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Happy days. Well, you also use your body for other types of work as well, because you work as a stripper also. So is that, has language changed? Do we still say stripper or is that? Yes. Yes. Stripper. I think you know, exotic dancer, I think it like, it went from being like what you call dancers, strippers out of respect to what people would say to kind of, like it became like what you call them out of respect. Then it became kind of like, now it's almost not used because it's kind of seen as like kind of using fanciful language to like the fact that you are a sex worker, you know? So I like, I like just like the in your face stripper language, um, exotic dancer. If I hear someone over the age of like 65, call me an exotic dancer. I'm like, Oh, that's cute. But if I hear like a 20 year old stripper be like, I'm an exotic dancer that I'm like, okay, distancing language, like fine. Um, well, it's stigma as well, isn't it? Of like, you know, like, sex work is a hierarchy as well and there is a is a hierarchy within um, sex work as well so yeah well that's because some people some people who would identify as strippers would say they were sex workers and some would say I'm absolutely not a sex worker but it's still I mean it's still using sex and the body just in different ways like it's an umbrella term more than anything else yeah, I think the most important thing when it comes to quote labeling people as sex workers is to always go off of the assignation that the person in question gives themselves, right? So if they ID as a sex worker, they're a sex worker. If they don't, they're not. And that is actually really it's a frustrating concept for me because, you know, there is no one singular definition of sex work. But for me, my working definition is the um, consensual sale the sale of uh, either explicit sexual services or sexual fantasies between um, two or more consenting adults. And so under that definition that I work with, um, you know, with my work that I do, absolutely somebody who strips is a sex worker. But sex worker oftentimes also has this like um, 
it usually means the person identifies with like the community of sex workers at large. Like it's a cultural and social and political identification, just as much as it can be like an explanation of what I do for a living. And a lot of people who perform sex work aren't necessarily connected to that, like capital C community. So that's usually where like that comes into play, but Yes, stripping has been my longest lifetime passion. I started dancing as soon as I was 18 years old. I'm 32. I am still stripping. Um, It is something that gives me so much joy and so much fulfillment and satisfaction. And I'm really, really good at it. And so I always, <laughs> I always say I'll stop stripping whenever either my body quits on me or people want to stop throwing money at me, whichever happens first. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> wise. That, that's but what is it? What is it you love? Is it the, like some people say it's the power aspect. Some people say it's the fantasy aspect. Some people say it's like literally the flexible working hours that you can choose. Like what, what is it for you? Oh my God, all of the above. So when I was a kid, I grew up um, in a very athletic household. My mom was a triathlete and I was raised, you know, I was like taking like a million vitamins by the age of like nine. And I'm like, we weren't allowed to like drink soda or like eat our Halloween candy. And so I just grew up in a very like health conscious household. My sister rebelled against it and I like got into it. And so um, I've always been kind of athletically inclined. And when I was younger, I didn't really like think of stripping as a career option for me, but um, I, I didn't think of it at all. But I just always thought to myself, man, how cool would it be to get paid to work out? Like that would be the coolest thing in the whole world. So on a very base level, strippers, I mean, there are lots of different ways of stripping, right? Like each stripper has her own style, their own style, their own hustle. Um, I am a very athletic dancer. I do a lot of really heavy pole tricks. I, I dance my heart out. Like I'm always sweaty on stage. Like I love it. It's a, it's expression for me. It's catharsis. It feels so powerful and as a very like dominant personality and also somebody who is very dominant sexually like that playing with power in a lot of different ways is something that's very attractive to me um and you know i get to like like you mentioned a very flexible schedule i get to pick my own working hours i can pretty much come and go as i choose um i get to set my own rates for my time so if i want to go spend time with somebody um, or if they want me to spend time with them in whatever way, whether it's sharing a drink or sharing a lap dance, I get to negotiate the terms of that myself. Um, The club where I work has a, gives a lot of autonomy and agency to the dancers. And um, yeah, I mean, I I just love it. I love it as creative expression. I love it as a way of connecting. um, Like when, when I'm like just starting to like flirt with somebody new or get into somebody, I will actually invite them to come like hang out at the club. Not because I want them to give me money, but because a, I want to see how they act um, around like the idea of potentially getting involved in a sex worker and with a sex worker in a very like explicit sex work, like, environment. Um, so I want to see if they can hang. Right. And then also, um, I love like giving people lap dances and it's just like one elongated, like tease foreplay for me is to like be on stage just out of reach, like completely nude, just like showing off. So yeah, I could talk about it for for hours. Literally, I, this could just be a conversation about how. Yeah, I'm but that's <laughs> and that's fine. Like you know, what you're saying there is like it's striking me of how different some of the common narratives are about stripping. So it's either that mm. it's 
easy work as in, oh, if all else fails, I'll just drop out of college and be a stripper. Or yeah. it's like there's such a lack of agency or it's exploitation. And, you know, some of the feminist theories are like, oh, you're a poor, exploited victim and you're a victim of the sex trade. But like you're quite clearly shattering all those stereotypes that are there. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, what are your thoughts on the whole like first of all like oh I'll just drop out of college and be a stripper thing like you you're saying like you've like trained for this you know yes I've literally made a career and that's what's so frustrating is that you know there are so many inaccurate and just disastrous stereotypes and stigma that surround sex work it would it would take again like more more than days more than hours more than days to go over all of them but one of them is that yes that sex work is kind of this last resort so I think that, um, you know, when it comes down to these conversations about like exploitation, I think that it really has to do with everyone's individual definition of objectification and taking control of a narrative and consent. So the biggest problem when we talk about things like sex work versus sex trafficking is that the conversation would be would be over in 30 seconds if people like understood and respected the concept of consent and how important that is when we are making that distinction in particular. Sex trafficking is the non-consensual trafficking of often but not always underage adults. And sex work is negotiated work between two consenting adult people. And that should be it. Honestly, that should be the end of the conversation. But because there is such a uh, misunderstanding and also a willful um, ignorance around the, again, the importance that consent can play in these situations and does play those two things, sex trafficking and sex work often get disastrously conflated with one another. And, you know, what I always say is that sex workers, strippers included, want to see an end to sex trafficking just as much as civilians do. Um, And if law enforcement actually worked with sex workers, not strippers necessarily, but usually street prostitutes, people who are working in outdoor locations, um, they could actually work together with sex workers to combat and finally eradicate sex trafficking because those workers are on the streets, they are the first people who literally see like a batch of new girls come in or a batch of like women come in who maybe like don't speak English or, you know, if we're talking about the United States, obviously, or who look like, you know, suspiciously underage or when a new pimp comes into town, like they have all that information. But because of all the stigma and stereotypes, law enforcement and sex workers will and are and will continue to be, you know, at such opposite ends um, yeah, with each other. the same here in Ireland. At yeah. The moment, and the law you know, change in 2017 and it just meant our trafficking rates actually increased because sex workers were afraid to go to the cops um, for fear of deportation or whatever happens yep. to be. So yeah, abs- absolutely. Yep. It's it's just, so yeah, yeah, it's a ridiculous So I get system. stigma, we get stigma and stereotypes from, from civilians, right? But we even get it from, from people who are inside our community from, from other self-proclaimed feminists, you know? So I, I'm a feminist and for for me, that means like that, you know, all people who identify or have identified as femme in their lifetimes, um, they are all entitled to complete agency and autonomy over their own body, period, the end. And while self-proclaimed feminists can get behind the idea that you should not force somebody with a uterus to have a pregnancy and prevent them from having an abortion, I know you all took a minute to come to that. Congratulations. Yeah, we finally um, got there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got it. I got it. I stay on top of it. 
top of the news. Um, you know, while most self-proclaimed feminists can make that argument very easily, for some reason, when it goes to translating that same exact concept to something that is sexually charged or more explicitly sexual, it's like their brain short circuits and they revert back to this internalized misogynist kind of kind of thinking. Well, it's like, well, they can control their bodies except when it comes to sex. You know, and to this day, the sex industry, which is an industry of mostly legal professions, right? Most people like you and I were talking about prior to hitting record today, most people, when they hear sex work, they think prostitution. Um, And while sex work is actually this massive umbrella, we're back to the umbrella now, the massive umbrella under which dozens and dozens and dozens of different niches of the sex industry fall most of which are completely legal to perform. And yet, let's take strippers and porn performers, for example. We operate in completely legal industries and we are the only industries where we are not trusted to regulate ourselves from the inside. Our own thoughts and opinions and beliefs and lived experiences as skilled professionals in our own industries are taken less seriously because of the sheer um kind of work that we perform and it is infantilizing it is fucking frustrating and you know it prevents us from truly having the same kinds of rights and protections that every other legal industry in again the united states speaking to um are afforded you know and so for me like objectification isn't a dirty word objectification Objectification is a hot word. Like I like being objectified. Not only that, I get really hot for being objectified and charging money for it. And I think consensual objectification is one of like the sexiest fetishes that you can, you know, dip your toes or your genitals into. And yet there are still people again to circle back who identify as feminists who disagree with that concept. And I, I just can't have any respect for that. Honestly, I really can't. So whether we're talking about stripping or sex work or someone who isn't even a sex worker who just wants to do with their body what they want to do sexually while they're doing no harm unto themselves or others and everything's between consenting adults. It still boggles my mind that specifically that it is still illegal in the United States, most parts of the United States, um, to sell something that is readily given away for free and also taken from people um for free so so yeah Yeah. that's i'll I'll step off my small soap no 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 it's it's absolutely (laughs) right though and i think the objectification part is something that isn't looked at in very nuanced terms it's only seen as a bad thing and there's no agency afforded to it now I think some of the conversations around that are changing but like you're saying there in the feminist debate you know when i was um do my research and I looked at the concept of who gets to be an expert in their experiences and I looked at the work of one particular feminist I'm not going to name her but she had said that um <laughs> if you have an orgasm with a man you're cooperating in your own oppression so I was like okay <laughs> that's something but she reduced Annie Sprinkle and you know for those who don't know Annie Sprinkle Annie is like in her own little universe like Annie is Annie she's done a billion years experience of all kinds of sex work and she's totally bonkers in a very lovable kind of way mm-hmm. she's amazing go look her up but she was like she's not allowed she's not an expert she's a victim 
And it's like calling someone a victim without their consent or that's not how they identified, that's objectifying them as well. And it was saying that Annie couldn't be an expert. And that's like you're saying, like, we're experts in this field, but yet it's the outsiders who are viewed as the experts. And it's like, you know, that's a power dynamic in itself. And that's objectifying because that's reducing you down to your body as well. And the work that you do, it's like your brain doesn't come into this at all. It's absolutely, it's absolutely. Bullshit. And it, it's, yeah, it strikes me like internalized misogyny is real, like internalized patriarchal, like ideology is real. It is something that we are all going to struggle with our entire lives until we die because we were socialized and ingrained with it so young. Right. And so it, bo- again, it boggles my mind to, to hear, you know, um, to hear a woman, you know, we'll speak in very like binary terms, like for a minute to hear like a cisgender woman, um, you know, basically tell somebody what they can and can't do with their body, or if they do something with their body, how they should be thinking it, thinking of it, like what is the right slash the wrong way to define that thing or to experience that thing, because you know who they sound a whole lot like is a man, right? Like who do we hear? Who do we hear telling people of feminine experience what they can and can't do with their bodies, how they should and shouldn't feel about things, about the way that their bodies, you know, move or look or smell or function um, or taste like? I mean, all of that is what we have been, you know, suffering under, um, under a patriarchal regime for since the beginning of time. And, and so it's really funny. You find these activists who like, you know, self-professed have dedicated their entire life's work to, to feminism. And then you hear them like mimicking the same, um, the word that I'm looking for has gone the same ideologies as their oppressors. Right. And that can happen a lot in marginalized communities. It's kind of like a point that you get to where like you almost max out on your activism and you start like, um, you start mimicking again, like the the thought patterns and the practices of those who seek to oppress us um, in a way, sometimes subconsciously and another way, because it's 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 what we know. It's what we've always known. And it's really hard to create completely new systems. Right. So. So, yeah, anyway, getting out of talking about it in a very like academic way, you know, rewinding all the way back to you saying oh like how do you feel about folks that are just like oh if I like my job doesn't work out just do sex work a lot of people think again that sex work is this like last ditch effort or it's this thing that people that have no other skill sets like fall into or are forced into and while that does and can happen um just like it can with any profession um you know, there are tons of people out there who are exactly where they want to be, you know, they're exactly where they want to be. And there is a ton of professional development when it comes to sex work, you have to be your own marketing person, you have to know branding, you have to know copywriting, you have to um, have be good with uh, like audio, video, uh, photographs, editing, audio and video, Um, you have to be your own HR person, you are your own executive assistant, you have to do scheduling, you have like there is, there's so many skills inherent in sex work, if we could just put it on our resumes, we would be eligible for a vast array of diverse, you know, professions, which would make transitioning out of the industry even easier but therein lies the rub right because those people who 
do disastrously conflate sex trafficking and sex work. The ones who scream from the rooftops how much they wish every person, you know, who is practicing sex work would get out of the industry and find another life. It's like being incarcerated. Once you're out, it's virtually impossible. It is made virtually impossible for you to transition into another industry, even in 2021, because of the sociocultural attitudes and the misconceptions out there about sex work. And so, you know, I, I'm actually a full-time veterinary technician. Um, I picked up the job a few months ago when I realized that you know, I hit a wall in terms of like practicing sex work during COVID and now things are slowly start to change it, to change and open up again. But, um, everybody in my practice knows what I do. Like the two head veterinarians know what I do. All of the other like vet techs know what I do. You know, I don't talk about my work at work. I don't tell clients what I do for a living, but I am fortunate enough to land somewhere where my skill sets that I have been carefully cultivated and honing for the past 12, 13 years are an asset, right? And don't work against me. And I also, as a point, want to say that I am a very privileged person. I am a white person. I am stereotypically attractive. I am thinner. I am cisgender. You know, I do not have to deal with a lot of the discrimination and the oppression that many folks both inside and outside the sex industry do. So while I have been able to make a career out of sex work and while I have still been afforded a lot of opportunities over the years, I also would like to, you know, just for the record state that a lot of that has to do not only with who I am and my, my work ethic and my determination, but also with my privileges. So yeah, I want to speak never to that real quick. It out, of, out of everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, going back to the skill set there, I mean, you know, and the, the lazy view, I suppose, of, of sex work, you know, that, that got brought into light again, I think during COVID when everyone was like, oh, we just set up an OnlyFans, you know, <laughs> it's like, just no bother, just once you have a phone and once you have a body and once you have a place to take pictures, yeah, there you go. And then you'll be in the top 100% and you'll get 20 grand a month and stuff. And it's like, uh, there's a bit more to it than that. Like you're saying there, like you're, full, you have to full on hustle. Like it, it's, it's marketing, it's business, it's strategy, it's, content it's about 20 jobs kind of all wrapped up into one and then then you're also competing with like a billion other people who now joined only vans in 2020 because of covid so like is that kind of become the the new oh i'll just do stripping it's like oh i'll just get an only vans <laughs> is that where we're going with that yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i i waited i literally started an only fans like five weeks ago i waited the entire pandemic because a, I didn't want to jump on the train, right? Like I knew OnlyFans was a thing. I am very comfortable filming pornographic content, but A, I already have my hands in too many things. I was already, you know, dancing and seeing clients and um, doing sex education and doing intimacy coaching, you know, all virtual as well as in person. And I was like, I just don't have time for another hustle. So that was like number one. I was like, I, if I do an OnlyFans, if I commit to something, you know, just in general, I want to like, I don't want to half-ass it. I want to give it my full ass. You know what I mean? Like I want to, I want to go in literally full. in so this was, case. Exactly. <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to be the kind of person that like puts up a profile and then maybe posts like a few photos a week and otherwise just lets it sit there and stall. I want to like go in and I wasn't in a position to do that. And then number two, yes, we all experienced like the massive surge, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic with, uh, you know, onboarding new, new providers, new content creators to the platform. And, um, 
you know, I think that's good and bad. It's kind of like the 50 shades of gray argument. I think that, you know, it did definitely oversaturate the market so that I think for some people it was harder to make money because they felt like they were getting lost in just like the overwhelming ether of all of these content creators. But at the same time, a, I guarantee you half of those new people stopped doing OnlyFans after a few months because they realized how much hard work yeah. it takes to like um, really truly cultivate relationships with people through that platform and provide them with consistency and provide them with creativity and like, you know, that that skill of figuring out the happy spot between what kind of content makes me really happy? Do I want to create? Do I love creating? Do I feel my most authentic and best self in creating? And what do people want to see me do? And then finding that middle area that feels like comfortable and safe and doable for you. And that skill just in any area of sex work is essential. And you kind of figure that out in the first year. And with OnlyFans, like people generally figured it out the first few months. So there are tons of creators on there. How many are still active though um, is yet to be seen, but you know, that's sex work is hard enough. The recent oppression over the past few years, the incredibly directed discrimination and oppression meant to eradicate people who are involved even tangentially in the sex industry from the internet has been the likes of which we have never seen before. I mean, this, this guided dedicated movement to sterilize the internet, to remove any kind of sexual, um, expression or, uh, or identification from the internet. It's, it's, it's a war. I mean, it is an outright attack um, not only on sex workers, but on any individual who has a sex drive and wants to investigate that and explore that and have conversations about that with other people on the internet. And, um, you know, it's going to lead to like an unhappier society overall. Like, okay, great Facebook, you don't want any sex, whatever. But like if sex is attempted to be removed from the internet which you wouldn't have thought would be a thing it's like a new digital puritanical kind of approach but like if people don't have access to decent sex ed to you know because they're shutting down sex educators as well as sex workers as well as like yep. any I can't even spell the word sex out on Instagram I have to do sex yep s dash sex s dash x to get it going but like it just leads to an unhappier society I mean sexual wellness in all its forms makes a happier society and I just don't think it's just like the consequences of that are going to be enormous on so many different levels for sex workers livelihoods for their safety for you know yeah the average person and that's yeah that's really where like my head is because you know so here in the united states we have sesta fosta which was signed into law by like he should now not be named um you know several years ago uh and basically what it did is it eradicated a very essential part of the Communications Act um, here in the United States, which used to stipulate that third-party websites such as Facebook, Instagram, uh, even third-party processes like PayPal, um, you know, website hosting services, et cetera, could not be held legally liable for what their users post on their website. So, for example, if a kid posts, I'm going to go shoot up a school, 
on Facebook and then he goes and shoots up a school, the victim's families cannot sue Facebook for allowing him a platform to express himself, right? Makes a lot of sense. However, what they did was um, our ex-president made an erroneous claim that at the vast majority of sex trafficking in the United States was being held on social media websites. And therefore, social media websites needed to eradicate sexuality from their platforms in order to make sure that no vulnerable children were trafficked. This is complete and utter bullshit. Um, Most sex trafficking happens on the streets. It does not happen um, on the internet. And when we're talking about labor trafficking in general, in the United States, even though sex trafficking is very heavily glamorized and sensationalized by shows like Law & Order SVU and things of that nature, it actually is a very minuscule problem as opposed to just straight up labor trafficking of mostly um, Latinx uh, individuals in kitchens and on farms. And yet, because, you know, until very recently, we didn't really give a shit about black or brown people here in the United States, of course, it is much flashier to attack sex trafficking than it is to attack labor trafficking. So this part of the Communications Act went away and all of a sudden it became impossible to be a sexual human being on the internet. And so circling back to OnlyFans, it's like sex work is difficult enough and has to be strategic enough um, and laborious enough in and of itself Now, every single day, sex workers wake up to an entirely new digital landscape where every day there's a new set of rules that we have to learn. Every day there are new algorithms that we have to find hacks around so that we don't get blocked or banned or shadow banned or reported or flagged on whatever platforms. I mean, I've been in this game for a really long time. I have a huge Facebook following. I have a huge Twitter following. I just joined Instagram at the beginning of the pandemic last year. And it has been with all of the things that I do, all of the connections that I have and the successes of all of the initiatives I'm a part of, it has been next to impossible to grow my Instagram following because I am just constantly shadow banned. And I'm not trying to push the, the algorithms, you know, I'm not like waking up every morning, like, let's see what I can get away with. It's just like, how do I survive? I mean, my partner, for example, is, is a very recent sex worker. I tend to turn out my partners. Um, and <laughs> they are a, um, they are a heavy set, uh, trans masculine person. And they just post, they had surgery and they posted a photo of their stomach. Like there's no there's no chest, there's no underboob, there's nothing. It is literally tummy. And while they're wearing full pants, it's just from here down of their tummy to show their surgery scars, their little tiny surgery scars. And because it was so much skin, Instagram and Facebook flagged them and blocked them for a week just because they are a larger person. And one of the algorithms that operates within that system is that they, they preset an acceptable amount of skin to be shown in a photo without taking into account the various sizes of human beings and the amount of skin that different people have. So it's like now, finally, civilians are experiencing the same struggles that sex workers have been screaming from the rooftops about for years, ever since SESTA-FOSTA was even introduced as a piece of legislation, but no one cares when sex workers, you know, say things or complain about stuff. It, 
it takes civilians to be impacted by those same things in order for people to raise awareness and start caring about it. And, you know, that's just the human lack of empathy versus empathy response, right? But it has been so unbelievably frustrating as a sex worker to just watch that happen you know I can only imagine yeah and isn't it just Lee um, a queer performer who says like sex workers Mm -hmm. are like the canary in the mine for things like free speech so if they can erode sex workers you know a group that apparently nobody cares about then if they get away with that they're going to go to everyone else then and erode their freedoms as well and obviously Instagram has has you know, come up from that. Like you can't even, yeah, the, the hashtag sex positives banned on Instagram, but you know, generally it will target, you know, bigger people and people of color mm-hmm. as well that they've been yep. predominantly targeted also. So there's transgender people as well, yeah. especially like way back to the real name policies on Facebook, right? Yes, where, yeah. where, you know, I was still living in San Francisco at the time that all of that was going off. And like, there were groups of sex workers that were actually being invited into speak to Facebook about this. And they were trying to tell Facebook, you know, listen, this is a safety issue. And they're like, yes, the safety issue. And they're like, no, 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 not in the way that you see it. Do you, can you imagine in your tiny pea brain privileged like head, can you imagine an individual who might be, who might be put in more danger by publicly, you know, um, uh, by by allowing the public to know their legal name, that it might endanger them further. And it's like for most people in positions of power, in positions of privilege, it doesn't even fucking occur to them. No, because you, you know, can buy like your it doesn't out of things. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah, I mean everything, you know, it's not just regard it's not just down to sex workers. And yeah, you're right. The most marginalized among us are the ones that get thrown under the bus um first. And so, you know, that's why I've been you know, I've, I've lost a lot. I lost my whole family, like over me being a sex worker. Um, I lost an acceptance into grad school was rescinded when they found out that I did sex work. Um, I've lost jobs. I've lost really great friends. Um, you know, but despite that, I still have a roof over my head and I'm still able to feed myself and I'm still able to like wake up in the morning and like know where like, you know, know roughly what my next day is looking like. And that is a fucking privilege and a half that, you know, so many sex workers aren't afforded. And so that's why I feel very strongly that those of us who are more privileged in the industry, we have an obligation to be visibly, prolifically, unapologetically out and speaking on behalf of these marginalized people um, on these issues, because oftentimes they can't speak for themselves without fear of looping it all the way back to getting blocked or banned or kicked off or flagged. And it's like when you own your own business, which sex workers are, we're entrepreneurs. We're literally like our own startups, right? When you own your own business and all of a sudden, all of the avenues of advertising and marketing that business and connecting with customers are completely taken away from you during a fucking pandemic, no less, you're fucked. You're absolutely fucked. Not to mention in the United States, Trump even took the liberty of explicitly writing out sex workers from receiving small business administration loans. It was like, oh, you run a small business. Awesome. Come apply. Oh, by the way, if you happen to engage in any, quote, prurient sexual behavior as part of your job, 
you're not eligible to get one of these things so you can go fuck off says and him I mean, that was like like yeah you know, after stormy and everything insane yeah. just insane like you're literally looking you're staring down the faces of the people in your country or your city or wherever because local government yeah. can be just as bad um you're looking in the faces of the most vulnerable people in your society and you are telling them not only am i not going to acknowledge you but i'm going to explicitly make your lives more dangerous and more difficult um that is that is something in a person that i will never be able to understand right i will never be able to empathize with and like it doesn't make any sense it's part of so many approaches to things like sex work and it's it's just like it's it's revulsion dressed up sometimes in care but the care aspect is like mm-hmm. yeah we want to mm-hmm. help you exit sex work so we're going to make sex work as difficult and as dangerous as possible and it's like that's mm-hmm. not helping <laughs> like that is all that's doing is increasing people um getting assaulted getting robbed getting put in completely difficult situations and like you said like losing opportunities losing opportunities to go to college using family and for some people losing family means losing access to support in a crisis or exactly you know, or like if god forbid you still live under the same roof as your family and now this could be a homelessness issue or god forbid you have children and you know your family or an ex finds out about what you do for a living this could be a child custody issue because there are no protections in the united states for people who do this kind of work and so I mean, if you got, if you have a government job and somebody finds out that you did, I mean, hey, look at the New York um, Post. That's the firefighter, someone was outing that. Yeah, she's like an EMT. Yeah, she was a full time EMT. I mean, somebody who is a literal hero, who literally, (laughs) who is more heroic and brave and better of a person than ninety nine point nine percent of us, and because the our country doesn't give the people who are true heroes medical professionals teachers people of that nature they don't pay us enough they don't give them enough money to actually take care of themselves she had to go hustle something else and and it was attempted now i actually think that the response to that i I actually was very impressed with it i feel like there were the folks who like went along with it being sensationalized and like you know, they, they clicked the bait, right? They took the bait and they ran with it, but there were equal amounts of outrage over that because, because again, we're in a pan, like, how dare you, how dare you do that to somebody? And so, yeah, anyway, I'm like getting all heated. No, 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 but but it's, it's also going back to, yeah, it's also going back to that infantilization conversation of like people coming in and saying, you know, playing like the savior being like what we call Captain Savaho like in our industry, which is like coming in and being like, oh, I, I know exactly what all you all you sex workers need to stay safe. You don't know for yourself. We're not going to ask you what would make your industry safer. We're going to tell you what we think will make your industry safer. And then we're going to pass legislation to make sure that you have to adhere to whatever our bullshit is. And you can't do anything about it because nobody respects you or takes your opinion seriously. And that is, oh God, that is, that is just, that's just monstrous. You know, it's monstrous. That's what happened in Ireland as well. So yeah, yeah. sex workers were told that, you know, oh, well, it doesn't matter if you're being put it at risk it'll send a message out for people not to get involved in sex work and it's like that's not how that works like that's that's definitely not how that works but oh yeah it's it's absolute hypocrisy and stuff but um 
there's there's a lot more to that conversation and definitely it's something that we'll be returning over and over again to on the podcast mm-hmm. because the more information about that the better and like you're saying look you, you know you, you have your privileged position and there's lots of different forms of sex work and the more people understand that the better like stripping working conditions are very different to porn working conditions and on mm-hmm. street prostitution is very different so we're gonna bring in all these conversations into the podcast anyway as well but um andre thanks a mill for for talking to me today mm-hmm. i just i i love your passion for for things like this and i just wish yeah the the legal aspect of things just copped on um a little bit more um where can people find you if they want to learn more if you're still on those platforms by the time this <laughs> podcast comes out i know right oh. no i am all over the internet so i am andre shakti that's a-n-d-r-e-s-h-a-k-t-i um i am on instagram as andre underscore shakti you do have to type my entire handle out for me to come up um and i'm on twitter as andre shakti um my website i am poly.net i-a-m-p-o-l-y.net is the homepage for my uh, non-monogamy advice column as well as all of my educational endeavors so it's my non-explicit work page and then you can go to sanctuarytheclub.com um sanctuary is an explicitly lgbtq um, virtual strip club that happens two to three nights a week we just celebrated our one year anniversary um i created it as a direct response to the disproportionate um financial impact that covid19 had and still has on the sex industry and out of work strippers in particular so um you can come through uh, most of our dancers are black indigenous dancers of color uh transgender and non-binary dancers as well as fat dancers so the kinds of like amazing strippers that you don't get to see when you go to brick and mortar strip clubs and um please check that out it's a lot of fun again that's sanctuarytheclub.com and then i am on only bands and i post um a lot of sexual content um as well as sex ed content so i the platform is also an area where you can find uh virtual and video workshops on a vast array of like skill-based classes um like deep throating and fisting and breath play and um all kinds of good stuff spanking clamps um lots of kink and bdsm stuff as well as like all like the nice like fat material so um carolyn thank you so much i have had a wonderful time talking to you and i will come back anytime thank you again please do no we're definitely having you back as well because we've only scratched (laughs) the surface but even as you're listing all your bits there i'm like that is such a hustle like to have all the different (laughs) platforms and going like this is definitely a big part of sex work you gotta hustle a lot Mm -hmm. there's a lot of business management and social media management in that so um but listen thanks Emil. you're an absolute legend and a very busy bee i never even got to ask you even about your a collection of stripper shoes but we'll we'll come back to that in another podcast anyway we'll get there but um brilliant listen I I really hope all my listeners go over and definitely treat yourself to some stripping on your laptop at the sanctuarytheclub.com um, and do good while you're getting off and having a good time also at the same time um if you want to dm me again it's at glow west podcast and that's the same on instagram and twitter like you said at the top of the hour if you want to support via patreon it's patreon.com forward slash Shack. if you have any suggestions or comments you know drop me a line and we'll see where we go from there and i'll chat to you next time